we are free to act according to our will, but we are not free to will our will. If we could will our will, every one of us would be limitlessly happy because we would just choose to will exactly whatever circumstances uh, we are experiencing at the moment. We are not free to will. Nature wills through us. We have no control of that will. All we can do is to act according uh, to that will. In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Bernardo Castro. Bernardo is a philosopher, author, and the director of the Essentia Foundation. He's the author of several books, including Jung's Metaphysics, Why Materialism is Baloney, and More Than Allegory. In this conversation, we explore Bernardo's thoughts on free will, the major differences between the Eastern mind and the Western mind, why engaging with the religious tradition of our upbringing can be the most direct path to transcendent meaning, how psychedelics have impacted Bernardo, Carl Jung's concept of synchronicity and what this reveals about the nature of our world, and more. You can learn more about his work by going to bernardocastrop.com or essentiafoundation.com. You can also check out their latest videos by going to the Essentia Foundation YouTube channel. Okay, welcome to the show. I'm joined here with uh, Dr. Bernardo Castrop. Bernardo, to get started, could you maybe tell us your thoughts on the main distinctions between the Eastern mind and the Western mind? That is a topic that has been very present in my mind recently because I'm trying to write something about it. It's it's not easy. Um, so everything I, I will share with you now is sort of, you know, the current state of my thinking and it's a personal view. I didn't do statistics about how Eastern people think and how Western people think. It's all based on personal experience and, you know, not it's not, this is not the result of a careful scientific study. <laughs> it's more a sort of a personal account. Um, I don't know whether I can summarize all these differences in one theme that would sort of weave everything together. So I'm not going to even try it. I'm just going to mention certain things that I think I've noticed over the years. The Western mind, for instance, seems to be more driven by teleological thinking. You know, uh, we, we, we want to have a purpose, um, a goal, yeah, that sort of indicates the general direction of our lives. And if we don't have that future attractor, so to say, that telos, that goal, that purpose, we sort of tend to become disorientated, uh, not, not quite know what to do with ourselves and even become depressed if we think life has no purpose, life has no goal. And then, then what is it for? And then it's for nothing. And then, and then we don't want to live. And you know, w w you have this in the in the psychology of the West. I think um, in the East, and when I say the East, it's more the historical East because the the East is now so influenced by Western thinking that, to a large extent, it's becoming Western as well. But uh, historically speaking, at least, they tend to be more in the moment. Um, that they cannot discern in their own minds what the ultimate purpose of the whole thing is doesn't seem to bother them. There seems to be a sort of a, a tacit trust 
that uh, nature is going where it's supposed to go and uh, we don't need to take explicit control over that or see the directions, see the purpose or understanding what's going on. Um, it's a more cyclical thinking as opposed to this linear evolution towards a goal or a place where we haven't been before. There things seem to be more cyclic and dynamic um, and people seem to be more at peace with not knowing where it's going or, or what is it for. Another difference is that, uh, not quite a completely difference, but another uh, a, a, um, a completely different difference, but uh, a, another aspect of what I just talked about is uh, reflected in um, spirituality as well. Um, Eastern spirituality has a tone of um, regarding life in the physical world, life here, our normal lives, regarding it perhaps as a, a mistake, something to be transcendent, to be left behind. Um, you know, the, the metaphorical image is, you know, you are in the first part of your life, you, you're a family person, you, you know, you start a family and you put your family in the right direction, secure everything, do your job. And then in the second half of life, you, you quit, you go up a mountain and you meditate for the final 30 years of your life. Um, there are some myths, part of the mythology of the East also has to do with this, this life here being a kind of error, a natural mistake, a natural error. And therefore, the way to go is to, to abandon it in life and make sure that you never come back. Uh, uh, if you're, if, you know, making sure you don't reincarnate. Um, in the West, it's different. We are much more engaged with this right here, right now. Even if we don't understand exactly what this is, um, we tend to remain engaged with it, to not check out. Even Western spirituality, although there is a monastic tradition in the West in which people do check out, um, but that is supposed to be reserved for a few. And the rest of us are supposed to be engaged uh, in life and express through life whatever it is that nature is trying to express through us. So there is not only a telos, but a, a teolo teleological drive, but there is a more direct engagement with, with, with life as it is right now. Uh, it is not dismissed as an error, even in spirituality. It's like God did it and God put us here. So there is some significance to this and we are not supposed to overrule um, nature or consider it a mistake, but uh, to go through what we are supposed to go through in this life and make the best of it. So that's another aspect um, um, of the differences. I, I, I could go on and on, but uh, what I'm trying to, to get across is that um, I don't think there is a right and a wrong here. I don't think we are right and they are wrong or they are right and we are wrong. Um, we tend to make this mistake. Um, in the far distant past, we thought we were right and the Eastern people were wrong. Recently, we think the other 
the other way around. We think that uh, we lost ourselves, and, and the Easterns uh, are the people who think clearly uh, about what's going on, and we should follow them, should follow their premises. I think both um, are short-sighted. I think there is a variety of human expression. Um, theirs is one aspect of it. Ours um, is another. And of course, even the term Eastern and Western, it's for historical reasons, because these are modes of thinking, modes of being in the world. They have little to do with geography and ethnicity, if anything. Uh, but historically, they, th these modes of being in the world have arisen uh, in different parts of the world, therefore Eastern and Western thinking. But that doesn't mean that I cannot be an Eastern thinker. I can, even though I'm a completely Western Westerner, both in geography and, 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 and in, in ethnicity. Uh, so that's not what I mean. Um, I'm using these terms just because of their historical origins. Okay, okay. I can tell this is a very... This topic is very fresh in your mind at the moment. I think you could go on there for, for quite a while. Another question I wanted to ask you was, to what, what influence has Christianity had on the Western mind, do you think? Oh, massive. Massive. That's historically uh, undeniable. Um, Christianity, I mean, it's, Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion. It's not really originally a Western religion. Western religions are more natural uh, religions, uh, more sort of cosmopsychist, you know, the world is alive type of thing, uh, very, very symbolic in nature. Um, but Christianity, despite that, it spread in the West like wildfire. Um, something in, in the archetypal foundations of Christianity resonated enormously with the Western mind. Um, and that's why spread so fast and became so strong um it, it, it rose to the level of uh, unquestionable fundamentalism in the west very very quickly so it has had a, a, a tremendous influence in the west for 2000 years uh, i think it is naive of us to to deny that or to think that we are immune to that and none of us who were raised in the west is immune to the influences of Christianity, because we get our our maps of symbolic meaning very early in life, before the critical intellect plays the role of bouncer, you know, and rejecting certain things and accepting others. Before we have the bouncer on the door, um, what we get, what we sort of breathe and eat and drink in our cultural milieu. Um, is is saturated with Christian influence, particularly when it comes to thoughts about what is transcendent, thoughts about what is the telos, what's the meaning, thoughts about what is the origin of it all and why it's happening. These thoughts that we absorb through the culture are, are saturated with Christian influence. And therefore, we were all laid bare to those influences very early in life. Even if we don't know that at a metacognitive level, it's right there. It, it's part of us. Um, I, I, I am very much in peace with it uh, today, to the point that I could even say, I'm a Christian. I'm okay with, uh, with being labeled that way. Of course, by the same token, I would also be okay if somebody would tell me, you are Hindu, <laughs> and, and, and you know a number of other things. But um, 
the Christian influence has, has come earlier. The other influences came later in life um, because of the way I was thinking. I started appreciating Islam. I started appreciating Hinduism, Buddhism. So there are other influences, um, but uh, the earliest and therefore the influence that is most fundamental in my psyche, uh, I think it's Christianity. And that's independent on of whether I rationally think it's a good mythology or not it you know even if i think it's not I, I that's not what i think i think it is an amazing mythology so rich in symbolism it it's almost unbelievable how nuanced and subtle the christian mythology is particularly when it comes to the idea uh, of the kenosis of god shedding his own divine nature in order to be a human and the idea of the trinity how three can be one without ceasing to be three uh, these are profound mythologies. Um, but even if I didn't think that, I would still have been largely influenced uh, by the mythology of Christianity because when I was young, the, the entire world around me was suffused with it in, in, in invisible ways. It's mm, really interesting. So it's almost like as we get older, we develop this kind of like intellectual bouncer that sort of keeps in some ideas or lets in some ideas and keeps most others out. But in our earliest years, that bouncer isn't developed at all. So we just become saturated with the cultural myths that we're, that we're surrounded by. So if we grew up in a Christian culture, then we just, that becomes almost part of our psyche. So when we're talking about pathways to transcendence, pathways to meaning, it would make sense that whatever culture, cultural milieu that you grew up in, that would be the most direct pathway so if like if someone was born in india and was grown up in a hindu culture they're probably going to find a lot more meaning in hinduism than they would if they seeked it elsewhere and it seemed for christians seeking seeking it elsewhere too what, what are your thoughts on that i, I think you're completely right uh, our experience of meaning and relatedness to transcendent uh, is an inborn experience uh, um we have all had that when we were young because we were still very close to our own origins. We hadn't yet replaced our direct experience of reality with narratives, with uh, concepts, with ideas and stories and theories, uh, which is what happens very quickly after you're, you reach seven years old. Very quickly after that, your experience of reality becomes entirely mediated by conceptual armor. Uh, we no longer have a direct access to 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 the meaning and and the feeling of transcendence that we had when we were still very close to the moment of our birth, um, and therefore, the way to evoke that primordial experience back uh, is through the symbols that we used to associate with that experience of meaning and transcendence when we were a kid. And what were those symbols? Well, those were the symbols that the culture has given us. So if you're a Christian, <laughs> you will associate your inborn, your original, primordial experience of meaning and transcendence with the symbols of Christianity. Because that's what the culture around you uh, was telling you. That, that primordial feeling, oh, that's the saints, or that's Jesus, or... That's the church or the Bible and the symbolism of Christianity. So as a kid, we associate those early symbols with experiences we have unmediated, direct access to. 
because we were still close to the moment of origin and we still hadn't laid this wall of conceptual intermediation between us and reality. So when you were an adult, the way to sort, of, to sort of try to go back to that primordial experience is through those symbols, those maps of meaning that we were given when we were kids. And there's nothing we can do about it. That's how our psyche was, was wired uh, uh, during our growth. Um, we cannot replace, if, if, you are, if, if you grow up with the influence of Christian symbolism, you cannot replace that with uh, Buddhist symbolism. I mean, you can become a Buddhist as an adult because you rationally, you know, you think things through and you realize that, okay, that resonates more with where I am intellectually today. Or I have tried Christianity and did, it didn't do it for me, so let me try something else. This is all possible, but I think it's naive to think that the symbols of another religion can have the evocative power of meaning and transcendence uh, uh, that the symbols we had when we were kids uh, have uh, when we are adults. Um, we may think that they don't have that power anymore after we grow up because of the narratives that we adopt. So as a grown-up, suppose you had Christian influence when you were a child and then you grow up and you study history and you realize that the church as an institution is behind the greatest crimes in the history of humanity. <clears throat> and you realize that um, many members of the clergy either are not sincere or sometimes are even criminals, abusers. And you become angry with the institution and you start telling yourself that uh, Christianity is a hoax. Um, that uh, you surpassed it, that you know you're, you see better things in life now and you become an enemy of Christianity. And then because of that egoic conscious attitude, the power of the Christian symbols to evoke transcendence, to evoke, to evoke meaning by connecting you to where you were when you were a, a kid, close to origins, that power seems to diminish because the ego is at war with it. Um, but if somebody could honestly come to a place where the person says, I will differentiate the institution, the church, the institutionalized version of the religion, I will set that aside and I will stick to my own personal relationship with that religion, with the symbology of that religion. In other words, it does not matter if half the clergy are child abusers. Because that's the clergy, not your direct relationship with religion, not the meaning the religious symbols evoke in you. The latter is a very personal thing. It's your, it's your relationship with a religion. It does not depend on intermediaries, on institutions, on the history of those institutions, on the officials uh, of those institutions. It's your private, personal thing. If people can make that discernment, and therefore not judge harshly their own private relationship with religion as they judge the institution and the acts uh, of that institution. If they can get to that point, I think they will quickly realize in that attitude of tolerance that the symbols of the, re the religion they grew up in are much more evocative of meaning and transcendence 
than anything they adopted as adults. I think it it bears repeating as well here when we're talking about this that religions are not supposed to be engaged with at a literal level. The meaning is found in the symbolism and the metaphorical level. You know, I think that's really important. And to be honest, in my personal life, you know, I I grew up uh, a Catholic and a Christian, and I've in re in recent years re-engaged at that level and i found a, a depth of meaning in it you know um so i just wanted to sort of you know to, to sort of go over that and the next thing i wanted to ask you about bernardo was around uh free will and i've heard you speak elsewhere about schopenhauer's perspective on free will and the implications on this and how we should live our lives i'm going to read out a quick quote from you right i just want to get your comments on this all right so in a previous interview, you've said, we are willed and then we are free to act according to that will, but we are not free to will what we will. So could you maybe elaborate on what you were getting at there? That's that's almost a, a literal quote from Schopenhauer. So you, nobody should credit me for that. They, you should credit Schopenhauer because he's the one who realized that we are free to act according to our will, but we are not free to will our will. If we could will our will, every one of us would be limitlessly happy because we would just choose to will exactly whatever circumstances uh, we are experiencing at the moment. So even if you were serving a life sentence in solitary confinement, you would choose that that's exactly what you will the most in life and you would be super happy. Now, that's not what happens. We are not free to will. Nature wills through us. We have no control of that will. All we can do is to act according uh, to that will, but not to will it. I think the whole question, the whole, you know, when people ask, is there free will? I think that's equivalent to asking whether the number five is married or not. Is there free will? Yes or no? It's the same as, is the number five married? Yes or no? Um, and, and forcing a, an answer. So if you're forced to answer, you might as well say the number five is married and the number five is not married. Or say the number five is neither married or not married. But of course, the, the, the right thing to say is to refuse to answer a nonsensical question. All right. So the question of free will depends on two distinctions. Um, it depends at the first level on there being semantic space between randomness and determinism. Because what we sense to be a free-willed choice is not a random choice, it's not the flip of a coin, but it's also not determined, otherwise it wouldn't be free. So if it's random, it's not will. If it's determined, it's not free. So there must be something in between. Well, no. There's nothing in between. Things are either random or determined. And even randomness is a label for the, the, the arches of determination that we haven't figured out yet. If you flip a coin and you say it will randomly land as uh, faces or tails, well, it's not random at all. The, it will land one way or the other in a very deterministic way, depending on the, the force and angle of your throw and the air currents, air temperature, and you know, all the acceleration of gravity. 
It's just that it's too complex for us to model, so we say it's random. Or in the case of uh, single events in quantum mechanics, we are completely unable to predict uh, whether a single microscopic quantum mechanic event, uh, what it will be. Uh, we can only predict statistically, you know, laws of large numbers. We can predict the averages, but not single events. And then we say, well, nature is fundamentally random. That's philosophically a complicated step because it mixes epistemology with ontology. In other words, the fact that we can't predict the outcome of single uh, quantum mechanical events does not mean that those quantum mechanic events are random in and of themselves. It only means that we haven't figured out how to predict them. Yet it's our epistemic uh, limitation, not an inherent feature of nature as far as you know. I mean, I mean that, that apes like us think that nature must be random at a quantum level because we godly intellects that we are haven't yet managed to predict it is supremely arrogant. <laughs> Uh, arrogance to the point of, of naivete. So that's one level um, in which we fall into a trap by talking about the concept of free will. We try to find the semantic space between uh, 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 randomness and determinism. That semantic space is not there. The other error is to find semantic space between uh, will and necessity. Um, that difference, the difference between what you will and what you need to do, what you will to do and what you need to do. There is a level in nature, a non-personal level, a transpersonal level, in which that semantic difference disappears. The necessity and the will become one and the same thing. Let me try to el quickly elaborate on it. When there is an external environment with external forces, then there is a difference between will and necessity. For instance, you wake up in the morning and you might not will to go to work. You do not want to go to work. You want to sleep longer and stay in bed. That's your will. But there is an external environment with external forces that impose the necessity of going to work on you. Because if you don't do it, you might lose your job, you might not have what to eat ultimately, it's you who don't want to lose your job. It's you who wants still to eat. But okay, we can speak of external forces. However, if nature is one consciousness, one mind, which we talked about last time, then there are, by definition, no external forces because nature is the sum total of everything that is the case, of everything that is. And if everything there is is one mind, there are no external forces. And then the will is the necessity. The necessity is the will. What nature desperately wants to do is what it needs to do. And it needs to do it because it desperately wants to do it. There are no external forces. Think of it. And it's, a, it's the wrong metaphor, but we use it anyway. Think of it as how an addicted mind operates. Um, why does an addict desperately necessitates the thing it's addicted to? Well, because it desperately wills the thing it is addicted to. The necessity of smoking the next cigarette comes from the desperate will of smoking the next cigarette. Now, you can think that you shouldn't will that, yes, but you will it nonetheless. Um, at the level of universal consciousness, which is all there is, we are just segments, dissociated segments of it. 
there is no distinction between the will and the necessity. The will is the expression of the necessity. And the necessity is the form of the will. They are no two different things. They are one and the same. And the moment they are one and the same, the talk of free will is like the talk of the marital status of the number five. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a senseless question. So what happens is that if people ask me, do humans have free will? Sometimes I say, depending on context, I say, yes, we do. Why? Because to me, free will is the expression of what you necessarily will. <laughs> so there is a sense in which you can say the number five is married. And there is a sense in which you can say the number five is single. But if you really want to dig deeper um, and, and, and figure out the question thoroughly, you understand that the question makes no sense. That we as individuals separate from an environment an environment that has external forces, that this is epiphenomenal. It's not what's really going on. It's a kind of illusion that arises because we are dissociated, temporarily dissociated from the rest of nature. That if you look at what is really going on, there are no external forces and there is no difference between will and necessity, between choice and determination. We always make choices. You're making choices all the time. But those choices are the expression of the determined will of nature. Okay, okay, all right. So what this brings to mind for me then, so are we sort of saying that it's sort of like, was it Heidegger, he had this concept of thrownness. We're all kind of thrown into the world at a specific moment in time, and we've all got a disposi disposition in nature. Yeah, and thrownness, we've all got... yeah, that's Heidegger, yeah. Yeah. And we've all got these kind of limitations within that dis disposition. So what we're sort of saying is that's the element that's determined. And then within that kind of, within those limitations in that context, we do have agency about how we dis um, can move within it. Um, and the thing that was sort of on my mind to ask you about then is that is a good general orientation for your life, particularly for a young people or for, for a young person to to develop skills and capabilities within that disposition that allow you to make a contribution to the whole of which you're a part, because then you be can become a force for nature, a force for um, contribution in the world. So when we speak of the question of free will having no actual meaning, one should not construe from that that um, you shouldn't be engaged with life and make responsible moral choices or responsible choices for how your life will unfold. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, you're, that you have no choices to make. You have choices to make. Ultimately, those choices are determined by nature. They are determined by what nature is, how nature is acting through you, which are determined by what nature is. Um, but the form of expression of that determination is our making choices, is our pondering questions. That's the form it takes. So it's not like we are not making choices. It's not like you can throw a coin and not care. No, no. The form of expression of nature's intrinsic determination is the act of thinking things through, gathering views, studying, 
making up your mind, being responsible about, about, about it, making moral choices, passing subjective value judgments on what's happening around you. Is it good or is it bad? Is it appropriate or not? Is it fair or is it unfair? And the result of that will be the choices you make in life. Now, what seeing through free will mean, means is that uh, after you've made your choices, there is no sense in looking back and saying to yourself, it could have been different. No, it couldn't. That's the only moment where understanding the inexistence of the question of free will plays a role. It's looking back at the past because then you no longer have the thought it could have been different. In other words, regret disappears, but not your moral responsibility for making those choices now because making choices is how the will of nature expresses itself in an inevitable way. It's through that process of making choices. Similarly, um, it doesn't mean that I, because I, I don't see sense in the question of free will as a philosopher, it doesn't mean that because of that I should stop talking about philosophy because everything is determined anyway, so there is no point in my talking about philosophy. Who am I going to influence? I'm not going to change anything. Well, there are two errors to this. One is obvious. I don't have a choice to not talk about philosophy. That's how nature is necessarily expressing itself through me. And the other is the following. Even a computer system, which everybody would say it's fully determined by you know, the logic of the chips uh, in a computer system, if you take one of those chips out, or if one of those chips doesn't produce outputs anymore, because it gives up, it thinks it's all deterministic anyway, so I don't need to provide my outputs to other chips anymore. Well, the computer has stopped working, right? Because yes, the system is determined, but the way that the determined system works is through inputs and outputs, through a sort of a cooperation across many parts. Those chips talk to one another in a determined way, but if one of them would stop talking, the whole thing would crash. So I am one chip, and the, the audience is another chip. Um, for this to work, I have to produce outputs that will become inputs for other people, and other people have to produce outputs that will become inputs to me. So that's the second, uh, the second thing we have to keep in mind. And the third, if I may add one more, is the notion that everything is meaningless just because it's, it's determined. That is a complete misunderstanding uh, of the issue because the universe is a computationally irreducible system. In other words, there is no computer in the universe that can compute in advance where the universe will be sometime from now. There is no way to predict where the universe is going. Why? Because you would need a computer bigger than the universe to compute the equations faster than the universe itself does just by going where it's going. You see what I mean? So um, this is in contrast to, for instance, computing ballistic trajectories. If you shoot um, a piece of artillery, you can compute in advance where the projectile will land because you know, letting the projectile go through the air is a computation, but you have a computer, you can have a computer that is more complex than the system of projectile and air and the pool of gravity and all that, and therefore can compute the future state where the projectile will land 
faster than nature itself computes it just by having the projectile go wherever it's going. So for subsystems, small subsystems like projectiles, you can compute the future state faster than nature does by just unfolding, by just playing it out. But when it comes to the universe as a whole, and the universe as a whole, we have good reasons to think is an, is an entangled system. So it has no separate subparts. To really know any future with precision without simplifying assumptions, um, you cannot compute that in advance. The fastest way for us to know where the chain of determination is bringing the universe is to just live life and let nature play out. There's no shortcut for that. No, shortcuts only exist if you make simplifying assumptions. Nobody can know um, in all exquisite details the position and momentum of the molecules that constitute a building at any moment in time. But we don't need to know that. All we need to know is, is the building go going to hold up or is it going to fall apart? That we can compute in advance. You see? So you make simplifying assumptions. But if you really want to know where the nature of nature is bringing it through determination, through determined choices, if you really want to know that, then you have to let nature play out. In other words, nobody, nothing in the entire cosmos knows where we are going. Because the only way to know is to get there, is to go. There is no way you can shortcut that because the universe, nature, is computationally irreducible. Therefore, life is, is a journey of exploration. The fact that it's determined is irrelevant because, yes, it's determined, but not even the mind of God himself knows where it's going. You see? So everything happens as if we are not determined because we don't have knowledge. We cannot fundamentally have the knowledge of where it's going. So we are discovering nature as we go. Nature is discovering itself as it goes. As a matter of principle, it's determined because whatever nature does is determined by what it is. There's nothing else <laughs> that it can be. Um, but nature itself does not know where it's going. So life is meaningful. It's, it's a journey of discovery. It's, it's a great research uh, initiative. And that is that it is determined or that determinism and free will, that that distinction makes no sense, does not change this reality, that it's a meaningful, tremendous journey of discovery. That brings me, I think, well into another question I wanted to ask you. What are your thoughts on synchronicity? I know you've read a, a book on Jung's metaphysics, and can you maybe tell us about the time that you found a red four-sided pyramidal pebble in, I think it was Lake Constance? Can you tell us about that? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Bodensee uh, in Germany, Lake Constance in English. I never understood why the English gave it a name <laughs> um, uh, like that, like a family name. But anyway, um, so first, the notion of synchronicity. The Jungian notion of synchronicity is that um, sometimes two psychic events happen together because of a conjunction of meaning and not because of causality. 
Now, when I say psychic, I don't exclude the physical world because Jung ultimately was an idealist, and I wrote a book defending this position. I can't tell in 30 seconds uh, why that was so. Jung never used the word uh, idealist as applied to himself, but he was one that you can see throughout the corpus of his work. So for Jung, the physical world was a visible manifestation of the collective unconscious, which is psychic, mental, mind stuff. So just as the collective unconscious manifests itself to us in dreams, in the form of dream symbols, people, buildings, cars, you know, that, that's what we dream of. In the same way, it manifests itself to us in waking state as physical symbols too. In other words, this world around us right now, this is a sort of dream uh, modulated by the collective unconscious. The physical world is the Kantian phenomena, the appearance of the world as it is in itself. And the world as it is in itself, in Jung's cosmology, is the collective unconscious. It is the appearance of the collective unconscious in waking states, as dreams are the appearance of the collective unconscious in sleep states. Um, therefore, you can have a synchronicity that, constitute, that, that is constituted by a coincidence between a psychic state in us and a physical state in the world, because that physical state, in fact, is also a psychic state, you see? And, and, and why there should be these coincidences? How, how do they happen if not through causality? Because synchronicities are not supposed to be causal. They don't happen together because of a causal chain that caused both of them. They happen together because of a correspondence of form, a correspondence of meaning. And the reason why this happens, according to Jung, is that the psyche, the mind, not only the human mind, but the collective mind, the, the collective unconscious, um, it behaves according to primordial templates. There are preferential ways according to which the mind of nature expresses itself as if there were harmonics, resonant frequencies, preferred ways in which the mind of nature wants to vibrate. You know, everything has a resonant frequency, right? Um, um, at least one, uh, sometimes many harmonics that are resonant. So does mind. And those resonant frequencies are the archetypes, these basic templates of behavior according to which mind preferentially expresses itself. And since it's the same mind out there and in here, it's just a, my mind is, is a temporarily dissociated segment of the mind of nature. Um, since it's the same mind, then it stands to reason that both sides would express themselves according to the same archetypes. My mind and the physical world express themselves according to the same archetypes. And therefore, that expression should coincide now and then, especially when there is a lot of archetypal meaning involved, when there's a lot of archetypal events involved. The examples of archetypal events are a mother nurturing a child, the mother archetype, or death, the death archetype, birth, um, another archetype, the hero overcoming great difficulties, another archetype. So when an archetype is constellated which the Jungian term for when an archetype is evoked by circumstances, you will tend to have that evocation express itself everywhere, not only in the mind of the observer, 
but in the mind that underlies the physical world itself. And then there are these major coincidences uh, of meaning that are not causal, but archetypal. Um, you know, the same archetype was constellated in the entire neighborhood, so things tend to happen together that evoke that archetypal meaning. In the case of my trip to Switzerland, I was uh, doing research for my book on Jung. This was several years ago. And at some point, I was at Lake Constance uh, with my feet in the water of Lake Constance. It was a warm, wonderful summer day. And um, I was on the German shore. I was about to go to the Swiss shore on the other side, but I was still on the German shore. So this, the Swiss shore was in front of me. Um, it, it was a narrow part of the lake, so you can see the other shore right there. And I was in a place where just across from me, a little bit off to the left, it was the place where I knew Jung uh, had been born. Uh, and uh, as I was thinking of Jung, uh, looking at the place where I knew he was born, a story he tells in his biography suddenly came to my mind. Um, there was a time, and this was already another lake. This was uh, uh, Lake uh, Zürich, but um, it was still a lake, and it was a lake in Switzerland, so the archetypal constellation was the same. Jung tells of, uh, uh, he was playing, building uh, a, a little church with uh, uh, lake pebbles on the margin of the lake. He lived at the margin of the lake. And he needed a pebble that would play the role of altar in, in the little pebble church he was building for fun. And uh, and then he was walking on the shore of the lake, and then he found a red four-sided pyramidal stone. And then he thought, this is the perfect altar, and he picked it up and he put it in there. And I, I was having that thought in my head, and I was thinking, do I really believe that? I have never seen a four-sided red pyramidal stone in a lake. No, no, lake stones tend to be just like ellipses or round, uh, you know, eroded stuff, and they tend to be dark gray or brown, you know, red, four-sided pyramids. Uh, it's probably Jung, Jung with his, you know, fertile imagination. He probably saw a circular grayish stone, and he thought, oh, this looks reddish, and this looks like a pyramid. And the moment I was having this dismissive thought, I look down in front of my feet, and there it is, a red four-sided pyramidal pebble <laughs> right in front of me. And it immediately freaked me out, but then that's my nature. My intellect, within a second, kicked in and said, oh, wait a moment. Look further, because if you find other red pyramidal stones, then it's trivial. It's not a, it's not a major synchronicity. I'm not being given any particular message from nature here, right? If I find others, it's, uh, it's it's trivial. And I spent a good half an hour with paying my feet, walking bare feet on uh, lake pebbles, trying to find another one. And there was, there wasn't another one. Um, another thing I thought was, could I have seen this pyramidal stone subliminally first? And then I thought of Jung, because in that case, it's causal and it's not a synchronicity. And then I played the tape back in my head and I was like, no, I was not looking down looking down at all, not at any moment. Um, maybe I, I glanced down, but I glanced down much further ahead than in front of my own feet. 
And I concluded to my own satisfaction that no, I hadn't done that. It was really a synchronicity. The same meaning was, the same archetypal meaning was constellated in my mind and the physical world um, around me. It was like nature telling me, don't dismiss Jung. Because that's what I was doing in my head. That's exactly what I was doing. I was like Jung and his fertile imagination. What is this business of four-sided pyramidal stones? <laughs> Red ones <laughs> in a lake in Switzerland. And, and nature sort of, no, oh yeah, okay. Uh, let me show you. Um, don't dismiss the guy. And at that moment, I started taking the book a lot more seriously than I already was. So and I, and I never dared to dismiss Jung ever since. It's been like four years, four and a half years now since that event. No, that was yeah, that was two thousand nineteen or eighteen. Yeah, four or five years uh, ago. And um, you know, even the parts of Jung's corpus, which I have read more than once parts of his corpus that I think, yeah, there is better stuff than this uh, in his corpus. Even those parts, now I go back and I'm like, no, wait, let, let me read this again. I shouldn't be dismissive uh, of it. Jung was driven by a strong diamond, and his diamond knew what he was talking about. Even if I don't understand it and therefore dismiss it, I should have a second look because the guy was not uh, an idiot. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I'm 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 joking here, but you know, um, you could even say <laughs> Bernardo Gashrup is the second coming of Carl Jung because you are like oh, you're born, that... you're born a hundred years after, is that right? On the year, is that right? Yes. Well, let let me first say this: uh, this is an insult to Jung. I'm uh, I'm 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 only I'm I'm only playing, I'm only playing. But uh, the something I, I just on the topic of Jung, and we talked there a little bit about the collective unconscious to start there too. Um, but, what do you but, make? But, but before you go there, let let, let, let me answer. The, your question was good. It's just when you said I'm the second coming of Jung that I thought this is an insult to Jung. But uh, yes, Jung was born in 1875 in July. I was born in October of 1974. So we are almost exactly a century apart uh, from one another. A few months uh, in between, uh, and I do have the habit of monitoring my progress in life, the phases of my life, by linking it back to where Jung was at around the same time. And I can do that even on a yearly basis. You know, my 2023 December is Jung's 2024 uh, August. Know what I mean? So, uh, uh, so I, I, I tend to investigate my life and how I mature, how I grow as a person, the steps of my own individuation, which is a Jungian psychological concept, it, it alludes to psychological prog progression, psychological telos, where is the goal of your psychological development as an individual. I monitor all that instinctively by linking it back to where Jung was, because I, I know Jung's life in pretty much detail, not only from his own biography. His own biography is a weak source about that because it's not a biography of events. It's a biography of feelings and thoughts. He doesn't talk about events, about chronology in, in his biography. It's a unique biography in that sense. But we have other sources 
and then because I know that I know where he was, what he was doing, what he was thinking, and every single year of his life, I compare that to my own life and to see if I am on schedule or not. <laughs> You've got a a high yardstick to aim for there, anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're both in this very similar line of work, and you're both I obviously idealists with with different ways of of expressing it. Um. But the question I wanted to ask you about was related to the collective unconscious. And when we we hear about things like psychedelics, um, near-death experiences, and other altered states of consciousness, you hear almost consensus reports about what people experience during these these um, experiences and trips. What do you make of that? What do you make of the fact that people find um, they seem to have similar experiences whenever they're under the influence of these um yeah whenever these things are happening look some people might might even disagree with the premise uh, of your question they might say well the hindu sees uh krishna and uh, the christian sees christ what do you mean it's the same thing um the appearances are, are of course very different there's a lot of noise especially in psychedelic trips there's a lot of your own skeletons in the closet, you know, a lot of your own bullshit. Let me use proper English word here. There's your own nonsense that comes up and it's unique. It's individual, um, tends not to be very profound. But underlying all that, if you can see past the noise and past the literal appearances, I think there is a surprising congruence of meaning. In other words, the superficial symbolism is all pointing in the same directions. Um, the Hindu, the Hindus, Krishna, is in meaning the Christian Christ. Actually, Hinduism and Christianity probably have some commonalities very early on because Hinduism also has a trinity. Krishna is also an incarnation of one of the members of the trinity. Uh, so, if you study religion origins a little bit further, you'll be amazed how much congruence there is between Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism. You know, Christ was essentially a, a Buddhist <laughs> uh, and the way he lived his life. Um, so that, that's what is required for us to see this amazing commonality you're alluding to, is to see past literal appearances, to see past personal noise, personal references, uh, and personal history, and look deeper into the meanings that are being evoked. And there, there is surprising commonality, amazing commonality. It cannot be a coincidence. Uh, it must mean that, um, not in all cases, but at least in the real deep cases, people undergoing a psychedelic experience or an NDE, regardless of geography or cultural background, they are landing in the same territory. I think that conclusion, um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's inevitable because the data is largely anecdotal and it's very difficult to do any kind of perspective controlled study. So I'm not going to say it's inevitable objectively, uh, but the data suggests is suggests a sort of a common landing area extremely strongly, very, very strongly. Um, and in my mind, uh, that's indeed what's happening. That's that's how I interpret it. I think uh, 
NDEs, psychedelics, um, syncope, some forms of brain damage, what they do is they impair uh, ordinary brain activity. Uh, and in doing so, occasionally, that impairment entails impairing the dissociative process itself. Because you know, but the, in my mind, and we talked about this before, the brain and brain activity is what the dissociative altar of the mind of nature looks like when represented on the dashboard of perception. Um, so it stands to reason that parts of that image, an active brain firing and all that, parts of it must be what the dissociative process itself looks like, not only the contents of the dissociation. And if you impair brain activity, you are impairing, at least in some cases, you're impairing the dissociative process. Not in all cases. In most cases, when you impair brain activity, you're impairing the contents of the dissociation. And that's just cognitive impairment. You become dumber, you know. But it stands to reason that occasionally, when that impairment is extensive, it will also impair the dissociative process itself. And if you impair the dissociative process, what does that mean? Well, it means less dissociation, a more porous dissociative boundary. You come again more in direct content, con contact with the ground of reality, with the, the, the mind of nature in its undissociated, non-dissociated state. Um, and that's, I think, the common ground where people are all landing. And of course, because mental activity is, in a sense, in a particular sense, abstract, in the sense of not having physical correspondence, because primordial mental activity precedes alters and therefore precedes physicality. So it doesn't correspond to anything, to, to any physical image. It's, it's an endogenous, it, it consists of endogenous experiential states like thoughts and emotions, but non-human thoughts, non-human emotions. So for a human to comprehend that, a human has to clothe those transpersonal mental states with symbolism that makes sense to the human. So I think we are all landing in that primordial mental space in psychedelics, NDEs, syncope, brain damage, uh, uh, hyperventilation, all these techniques that impair the dissociation. We are landing in that same place. But when we come back and we want to talk about it, we immediately clothe it in terms that evoke those endogenous states, but according to the references of our particular culture. So the Hindu saw Krishna. The Christian saw Jesus. The, athe the atheist saw his dead grandmother. Whoever, whatever symbol will convey the feeling of uh, unconditional love, of unity, of totality. Um, so you explain your experience to yourself through that symbolism already. Um, and, and I think that's what's going on. That's fascinating. All right, so only a few minutes left. And something I heard you speak about in another conversation was you have experimented with active imagination in the past could you maybe tell us about how that practice works for you and yeah what does it actually look like in practice i am well physiologically handicapped when it comes to meditation active imagination and altered states of consciousness meaning i, I it's extremely extremely difficult for me 
to move myself off my baseline state of consciousness, my analytical state of consciousness. I am very, very metacognitive. I am impossible to hypnotize. Um, I don't slide spontaneously into reverie and altered states of consciousness. And I, well, I'll, I'll say it because it's true even if it makes me look petty. I envy people who can do that. Um, and and I, I don't find it appropriate for anybody to feel envy, um, but I accept that I, <laughs> that I feel it. You know what I mean? I can't help it. Um, I, I have realized that um, you know when we are born, we are all dealt um, a set of cards, a hand of cards, right? And 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 I was dealt mine, and I am very grateful for some of the cards I was dealt. I. I can process information, a lot of information, uh, quickly. So I'm happy about that. But I have not been dealt a number of other cards that I would have liked to have, and this is one of them. Um, so active imagination, states of reverie, uh, altered states of consciousness are extremely difficult for me. Um, I have no spontaneous access to those states. So the experience you're alluding to probably is what I uh, wrote about in uh, Dreamed Up Reality, one of my earliest uh, books, I don't know, 15 years ago. Um, but to, to achieve that, uh, one, I did a lot of research um, and all the techniques available. Um, I even consulted with my own doctor because I'm in a country in which certain psychedelic substances are legal. So I went to my doctor, talked to him, I want to do this, and had my liver checked, had my blood pressure and heart checked to make sure that uh, you know, if I did high doses, that I wouldn't be stressing my physiology to a point where it could trigger a pre-existing problem that I didn't know was there. So there, there is no pre-existing problem. Um, and I used many techniques concurrently. So I took psychedelics while I, I was wearing um, a mind machine <clears throat> which produces synchronized patterns of flashing and binaural rhythms in your ears tries to entrain your brain to get your train your, your brain to sort of follow certain frequencies and rhythms that will move you off your baseline analytical state of consciousness um, all of this I did uh, after going through long meditation sessions um, changing my diet to avoid certain things that I knew uh, would make it more difficult to sort of shift my state of consciousness, uh, avoiding anything with sugar, anything with high calorie content uh, for days before um, uh, going through the experience. And yes, putting this all together in high intensity and high doses, yes, I achieved um, non-trivial states of consciousness that to me were absolutely mind-boggling for especially two reasons that I hadn't expected in advance. Despite all my research, um, for some, I think it was there in the research, but I didn't pay attention to it or I didn't really understand what it meant. Uh, there were two things that were very discombobulating for me um, in these uh, other states. One was how familiar they are, despite being completely strange and alien. 
I don't know how to explain this seeming contradiction. Um, I expected that I would, my attitude was that of um, an explorer. I had my notebook in my hands, uh, 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 metaphorically speaking, and I was going to, to go into a foreign country and observe it very objectively and take notes and come back. That's what I thought was going to happen. But that foreign country is as much a foreign country as it is you. There is no distance. You, you are not an observer detached from what you're observing. What you're observing is you, but it's not a person. <laughs> um, and, and it's the size of the cosmos. Um, so it, it, when you try to talk about it, the whole thing becomes incredibly contradictory. But during the experience, it's not contradictory at all. And that's the second surprise. So the first one is how familiar it is. The second one is how self-evidently real it is. More real than this here. That was my second surprise. Um, and, and then I had to work that out. It so happens that I was already an idealist. Um, and with my idealist conceptual um, dictionary and my idealist conceptual tools, um, I could make sense of it. Uh, so it, it, it didn't throw me for a loop afterwards, which happens to a lot of people. They don't know, they don't know what to make of it. They can't integrate it. Uh, I could because I got lucky and I, and I had the tools that allowed me to integrate and find the space for it and conceptualize it in a way that was satisfying to me that allowed me to think, oh, no, this, I, I understand this. This, this. this is reasonable at a meta level, at some meta reason level. Um, uh, there was one thing else I wanted to say, but I, uh, I forgot. And, oh, oh uh, that's just a disclaimer. By saying this, how surprisingly familiar and self-evidently real it is, more real than real, I don't mean to say that um, every psychedelic trip, for instance, is real. I don't mean to say that at all. Most psychedelic trips are your own bullshit. Are you laying yourself bare, uh, lowering your defenses to your own bullshit, to your own fantasies, your own traumas, your own hidden thoughts, uh, the emotions that you, that you uh, don't want to know you are having, uh, and you're fantasizing, uh, you know, it's a, a dream state. So most of it is just your own nonsense. It nonsense. It it has no profound reality at all. It's very superficial stuff. But if you break through, and then only the people who once have broken through know what I'm talking about. If you break through the bullshit level, you know, the noise, the fantasies, the traumas, your personal stuff. And even if you, after you break through the cognitive noise around you, which is not your personal stuff, it's stuff that is not personal to you. It's more in the collective areas of the psyche. But it's also noise. It's also a lot of nonsense. Uh, or maybe not nonsense, but uh, it's more the psychoanalytic part and you know, superficial stuff. If you break through that too, then eventually you get to that space that is more real than real. And it is not at all at a distance from you. It's the size of the cosmos, but it's within you. Uh, and it is you. And, um, and it is incredibly, fa incredibly familiar at the same time that it is discombobulatingly alien and totally distinct from any reference you take with you as a human. 
Um, and some people describe it as when you break through humanity. In other words, you break through your personal self, and then you break through the collective unconscious of the human species. After you break through these two boundaries, that's the more real than real space. That's the very familiar space. Not necessarily the noise stuff that people get if you know, they take low-dose psychedelics in a party or this kind of nonsensical stuff. If you do it seriously, you can get to that more real than real space. And there is no questioning it afterwards. Afterwards, you don't come back and say, was that really real? No, no, no. <laughs> By then, you know, there are certain things you cannot unsee, if you know what I mean. For sure, for sure. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, for people that want to learn more about your work, Bernardo, um, and the Essentia Foundation, where can they find that online? You guys have a really, your YouTube channel moment is thriving. It's the Essentia Foundation YouTube as well. Can you tell us a bit, bit about that? Yeah, it, it has started growing a lot. Um, um, I, I am surprised, but at the same time, not completely, because um, this year um, we hired a, a professional filmmaker, somebody who used to work for the Dutch version of the BBC or the Dutch version of, uh, in the US, uh, how is it called in the US, uh, their national broadcaster, PBS public broadcasting system. So we also have public broadcasting uh, corporation uh, uh, in the Netherlands. And um, th this person, Hans Boostra, who is uh, working for us now, uh, not for us, I mean, he, he is now Essential Foundation too. Um, he is a professional documentary filmmaker that worked not only for this public broadcaster, but uh, a number of other broadcasters in the Netherlands for many years. Um, so he knows what he's doing, and he's put a team together of professionals that know what they are doing. And uh, the production quality of our videos is now much higher uh, than it was in the beginning when we were sort of learning as amateur filmmakers. Now we have a professional team doing, doing that stuff. And it's a level of quality that YouTube is not used to. People who watch YouTube usually expect you know, somebody at home making his own videos, you know, and they get millions of views, but it's a sort of a, a pr prototype-like stuff done at home with unprofessional equipment and um, edited in an unprofessional way. And now when we watch our stuff, they go like, oh, am I watching a PBS Nova documentary? <laughs> in here, it's, you know, it, it's not as expensive a production because we produce a lot of videos so we have to cannot spend so much per video but it comes across as as professional and now we have a video now around 300,000 views which is like 10 times more than the best videos we had before um, and next year 2024 uh, we are hoping to get to a million views um, in a single video um, let's see it's a knock on wood um, and hope that that happens. But uh, yeah, Essential Foundation is the place to go, essentialfoundation.org. And Essentia is uh, E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A, foundation, one word, dot uh, uh, O-R-G. Or you can go to Bernardo Kastrup, one word, dot com. And that's my personal website. And there's a lot of free stuff there, free essays, free academic papers, uh, free videos, podcasts, interviews, all kinds of things. The books are not free because they are published by a, a company, uh, Collective Inc. Uh, in the UK, um, because uh, 
authors know that even though they're not going for the money, um, if the book is for free and uploaded as a PDF online or uploaded on Amazon as an EPUB, people don't take it seriously. People only take it seriously when it's published by a publisher, a professional publisher. Um, a big one, Collective Inc. is part of Watkins Publishing. It's a big publisher in the UK and the US. So that's why the books are not free. <laughs> that's the only reason why the books are not free. Although I have been known... Should I say this in public? Say it. <laughs> I have been known to feed the underground pirate market <laughs> of books <laughs> with my own stuff. But you shouldn't do that. You should buy your books officially. Uh, you get better quality uh, copies, either hard copies or proper EPUBs, which are much better to read in a reader than a PDF that doesn't get the right format, can't resize it, can't make notes on it. And any, anyway, yeah, these are the places. And it's worth saying as well that you spend, you know, you spend years writing these things and put your 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 life's best energy into them. So I think it's just it's only right that you are compensated for that as well, you know, by getting a better return for it as well to keep things going. But um anyway, Bernardo, um I think you're right. And I think for many authors it's important that people buy their books officially because that's how they can live and write new books. Um in my case, after twenty-five your career in, in high tech in the corporate world. And, and now as a, the director of Essential Foundation, we are not for profit, but I do have a salary. I earn a lot less than I used to, but I do have a salary. So in, in my case, that's not really the point uh, to sell the books. But what you said is applicable to most other authors. And I think we should help other authors continue to write by buying their books properly, officially. Well, Bernardo, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure. Always nice I wish, talking to you. I wish you the best for 2024. And Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and everybody else. <laughs> Thank you, Bernardo. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to your mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is 97 pounds for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.